Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 80 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's Bible question, what is the fruit of the Spirit, and how does one live by the fruit of the Spirit? So, hello, friends, and welcome into Shelter in Place, day number two. So far, our family of seven, yes, we have five children, has managed to survive the first day, but... If I'm being honest, the kids are growing restless, and I'm not sure how this is going to work out between now and April 7th, and obviously, like uh, many others in our area of Central California, I'm concerned that April 7th is just the uh, beginning of the shelter-in-place deal. Well, we'll see when we get there, right? Today's Bible passages are Exodus chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 6, John chapter 9, and Galatians chapter 5. Now, one of these days, I want to do a deep theological dive into a passage we're going to read today, which is John 9, 41, which says... If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Wow, that is an interesting passage. And I'll just be honest with you, I've known about it for a while, not really sure what to make of it, and have never taken a massively deep dive into it. But one of these days, maybe so. Today, however, is the day we consider the Bible's teaching on the fruit, which is singular, of the Spirit which comes from Galatians chapter 5. So let's go ahead and read Galatians chapter 5. It's a very short passage, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. For freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord that you will not accept any other view, but whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
Now, the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So those that are of the flesh, that is to say, those that are untransformed humans will live their lives in a way that is dominated by what Paul calls the works of the flesh. There will be outbursts of anger, hatred, strife, jealousy, as well as, you know, the pursuit of drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, multiple partners outside the bounds of marriage, clicks, coveting, jealousy, and basically, uh, if I'm being cynical here, all of the things that you see celebrities modeling on Instagram on any given day. Those things represent the values and the vices of the world. Those things that human beings pursue and desire and give their lives to, along with those weaknesses in humanity that come out in unfiltered ways among those who are not transformed by the gospel and the spirit. Now, Paul is not merely saying that bad people of the world display the works of the flesh. He's saying that every human in the world will live and breathe and do the works of the flesh because they've been corrupted by the fall in Genesis 3 and their hearts, our hearts, were and their hearts are bent towards the works of the flesh, the evils that are mentioned here, and bent away from the character traits of God. So consider God's assessment of humanity in Genesis 6, verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all of the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. So, when you see the phrase, works of the flesh, don't think bad guys, think human guys. However, as Paul has been sharing with us, those who believe the gospel are transformed. Now, it's not a work of self-discipline in the same way that somebody who is out of shape can work very hard and diet very hard and get to the point where they're extremely physically fit. The kind of transformation that is being talked about in the Bible and in Galatians in particular is not an outer effort of the flesh like working out, but an inner ministry and recreation of the Holy Spirit that transforms the very nature, desires, and inclinations of a person. Indeed, that transformation is so radical and complete, ultimately, that Paul talks about it in terms of death. The death of the old man, the man of flesh and humanity, and the new life that comes from the indwelling Spirit of Christ. So Galatians 2 says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through 
you know, obeying the law, then Christ died for nothing. So that, that transformation and salvation, says Paul, does not come from the efforts of the flesh or through doing good works or through obedience to all of God's commands. The transformation happens by grace through faith and is an activity of the Spirit. Growth and sanctification also does not come as a work of the flesh or through human effort, but it is a continuous and ongoing work of transformation by the Spirit. Galatians 3, 2-4 says, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? An issue we have is that the flesh, our humanity, desires things that are often the opposite of what the Holy Spirit would have us desire. So Paul talks about this in Romans, and he says, wretched man I am, who will save me? He talks about how he desires with his flesh one thing, but the Spirit in him desires another thing. And so Galatians 5, 16 through 18 says this, I say then, says Paul, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the old self, or the old man, as Paul calls it, often tries to come back from the dead, as it were, as a sort of zombie, and lead our hearts back to the desires and works of the flesh. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4, uh, take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. The good news for a saved follower of Jesus is that our old self or old man was crucified. So though sometimes the desires return to us and bite inside us, that old man itself is dead, dead, dead. Romans 6, for instance, says, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we no longer may be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. So now, we don't live a life anymore that is filled with the things of the old self like sexual immorality and greed and idolatry and factions and cliques and jealousy, etc., but a life that is filled with the nature and blooming in us character of Jesus. These character traits of Jesus, these character traits of God, are called the fruit of the Spirit. As we learn from Jesus, seek first his kingdom, follow his ways and his teachings and his word and follow him, then the fruit of the Spirit will grow in our lives. We don't make the fruit go in the same way, grow in the same way that like, again, lifting weights makes our muscles grow, but it will grow if we are abiding in Jesus. That's a promise. Consider John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
remain in me and I in you, or abide in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So again, the fruit of the Spirit does not come to us in the same way that fitness in a chiseled body comes to a weightlifter. The fruit of the Spirit grows in the soil of our lives naturally as long as we are rooted and grounded in Christ. So then, Colossians 2, 6-7 says, Just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, being rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. So let's close with some spiritual wisdom on the fruit of the Spirit from a man who was my first spiritual hero, at least the first one I remember, when I was eight or nine, for whatever reason, and I'm sure some adult introduced me to this man, I devoured biographies uh, about the British missionary to China, Hudson Taylor. I loved Hudson Taylor, and I still do. Uh, one of the greatest missionaries of the gospel that ever lived. And this is what he said. The careful student of scripture will notice the parallelism between the teaching of Psalm 1 and that of our Lord in the gospel of John, where in the sixth chapter, we are taught that he who feeds on Christ abides in him. And in the 15th chapter of John, that he who abides brings forth much fruit. We feed upon Christ, if you'll remember back in John chapter 6, we talked about a few days ago, we feed upon Christ, the incarnate word, through the written word of God, the Bible. So in this psalm, he who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates upon it day and night, Psalm 1, brings forth his fruit in his season. There's something beautiful in this, says Taylor, a word spoken in season, how good it is, how even a seasonable look will encourage or restrain, reprove or comfort. The promise reminds one of those in John about the living water that thirsty people drink and are not only refreshed, but themselves become channels through which rivers of living water are always flowing so that other thirsty ones in their hour of need may find seasonable refreshment. But the figure in the psalm is not that of water flowing through us as through a channel, but that of fruit, the very outcome of our own transformed life, a life of union with Christ. It is so gracious of our God not to work through us in a mere mechanical way, but to make us branches of the true vine, the very organs workers, for there is a fundamental difference between fruit and work. Work is the outcome of effort. Fruit is the outcome of life. A bad man may do good work, but a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. The result of work is not reproductive, but fruit has its seed in itself. The workman has to seek his material and his tools, and often to set himself with painful perseverance to his task. The fruit of the vine is the glad, free, spontaneous outcome of the life within. And it forms and grows and ripens in its proper season. And when is the fruit which the believer should bear? May it not be expressed by one word? Christliness. It is interesting to note that the scripture does not speak of the fruits of the Spirit in the plural as though we might take our choice among the graces named, but of the fruit 
in the singular, which is a rich cluster composed of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. How blessed to bring forth such fruit in its season. Quote, his leaf also will not wither. In our own climate, many trees are able to maintain their life throughout the winter, but unable to retain their leaves. The hardy evergreen, however, not only lives, but manifests its life and all the more conspicuously because of the naked branches around. The life within is too strong to fear the shortened day, the cold blast, or the falling snow. So with the man of God, whose life is maintained by hidden communion through the word, adversity only brings out the strength and the reality of the life within. The leaf of the tree is no mere adornment. If the root suggests to us receptive power in that it draws from the soil the stimulating, stimulating sap without which life could not be maintained, the leaves no less remind us of the grace of giving and of purifying. They impart to the atmosphere a grateful moisture. They provide for the traveler a refreshing shade, and they purify the air that is poisoned. Keep a tree despoiled of its leaves sufficiently long, and it will surely die. So unless the believer is giving as well as receiving, purifying his life and influence, he cannot grow nor properly maintain his own vitality. But he who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates in it day and night, his leaf shall not wither. So my friends, I believe the conclusion of what our brother Hudson Taylor was teaching us is that when we abide in Jesus, when we feast on his word and turn towards him, then the fruit of his spirit will be grown in our lives by supernatural processes and not the effort of the flesh. Exodus chapter 30 verse 1 You are to make an altar for the burning of incense. Make it of acacia wood. It must be square, 18 inches long, and 18 inches wide. It must be 36 inches high. Its horns must be of one piece with it. Overlay its top all around its sides and its horns with pure gold. Make a gold molding all around it. Make two gold rings for it under the molding on two of its sides. Put these on opposite sides of it to be holders for the poles to carry it with. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You are to place the altar in front of the curtain by the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on it. He must burn it every morning when he tends the lamps. When Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he must burn incense. There is to be an incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You must not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt or grain offering. You are not to pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron is to perform the atonement ceremony for the altar. Throughout your generations, he is to perform the atonement ceremony for it once a year with the blood of the sin offering for the atonement on the horns. The altar is especially holy to the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to register them, each of the men must pay a ransom for his life to the Lord as they are registered. Then no plague will come on them as they are registered. Everyone who is registered must pay half a shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which is twenty geras to the shekel. This half shekel is a contribution to the Lord. Each man who is registered twenty years old or more must give this contribution to the Lord. 
The wealthy may not give more and the poor may not give less than half a shekel when giving the contribution to the Lord to atone for your lives. Take the atonement price from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will serve as a reminder for the Israelites before the Lord to atone for your lives. The Lord spoke to Moses, make a bronze basin for washing and a bronze stand for it. Set it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and feet from the basin. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister by burning an offering of the Lord, they must wash with water so that they will not die. They must wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a permanent statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. The Lord spoke to Moses, Take for yourself the finest spices, twelve and a half pounds of liquid myrrh, half as much of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cane, twelve and a half pounds of cassia by the sanctuary shekel, and a gallon of olive oil. Prepare from these a holy anointing oil, a scented blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be holy anointing oil. With it you are to anoint the tent of meeting. The Ark of the Testimony, the table with all its utensils, the lampstand with its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin with its stand. Consecrate them and they will be especially holy. Whatever touches them will be consecrated. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them to serve me as priests. Tell the Israelites, this will be my holy anointing oil through your generations. It must not be used for ordinary anointing on a person's body, and you must not make anything like it using its formula. It is holy, and it must be holy to you. Anyone who blends something like it or puts some of it on an unauthorized person must be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, Take fragrant spices, stacti, unkyuk, and galbanum. The spices and pure frankincense are to be in equal measure. Prepare expertly blend incenses from these. It is to be seasoned with salt, pure and holy. Grind some of it into a fine powder and put some of it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It must be especially holy to you. As for the incense you are making, you must not make any for yourselves using its formula. It is to be regarded by you as holy, regarding uh, belonging to the Lord. Anyone who makes something like it to smell its fragrance must be cut off from his people. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 1. My son, if you put, have put up security for your neighbor or entered into an agreement with a stranger, you have been snared by the words of your mouth, trapped by the words from your mouth. Do then, this then, my son, and free yourself, for you have put yourself in your neighbor's power. Go, humble yourself, and plead with your neighbor. Don't give sleep to your eyes or slumber to your eyelids. Escape like a gazelle from a hunter, like a bird from a hunter's trap. Go to the ant, you slacker. Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during harvest. How long will you stay in bed, you slacker? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes around speaking dishonestly, winking his eyes, signaling with his feet, and gesturing with his fingers. He always plots evil with perversity in his heart. He stirs up trouble. 
Therefore calamity will strike him suddenly. He will be shattered instantly beyond recovery. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. My son, keep your father's command and don't reject your mother's teaching. Always bind them to your heart, tie them around your neck. When you walk here and there, they will guide you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you wake up, they will talk to you. For a command is a lamp, teaching is a light, and corrective discipline is the way to life. They will protect you from an evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a wayward woman. Don't lust in your heart for her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyelashes, for a prostitute's fee is only a loaf of bread, but the wife of another man goes after a precious life. Can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? So it is with the one who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People don't despise this thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. Still, if caught, he must pay seven times as much. He must give up all the wealth in his house. The one who commits adultery lacks sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. He will get a beating and dishonor, and his disgrace will never be removed. For jealousy enrages a husband, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not be appeased by anything or be persuaded by lavish bribes. John chapter 9 verse 1. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, He is the one. Others were saying, No, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, Go to Siloam and washed. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees, to the the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. 
The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked him, Is this your son, the one who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, He's of age, ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple. We're Moses' disciple. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. That is an amazing thing, the man told him. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. Are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Oh, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, Oh, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Well... That's quite a passage. I am particularly enamored with the blind man when questioned by the Pharisees in verse 27 when he said, I already told you who opened my eyes and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? I mean, that is one of the best takedowns in the entire Bible as far as I'm concerned. Well, let us be like that man whose eyes were opened by Jesus, who said, I believe, Lord, and worship Jesus rather than the other foolish people in this story. May the Lord bless you, friends. May he preserve you as we go through this pandemic scare. He is faithful. He is good. He is true. He is worthy of our worship. And no matter what happens to our physical bodies, if we are in Christ, he has preserved our lives forever. Blessed be his name. Godspeed to you.